Today I speak with Ondi Timona, a filmmaker whose latest film explores the deeply personal journey of her father seeking the right to die. Here she is talking about the impact her film is having on audiences. The reaction has been people calling their 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 fathers that they haven't talked to in 10 years, people holding hands in the cinema who are complete strangers and crying together. One man stood up in the in the cinema in New York the other day and said that he's not going to carry his shame from this day forward, that the movie has transformed his life. So it's it's moments like that that you're just like, okay, that's truly the power of magic of film. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. I'm going to get that gun of mine, and I'm going to change you from a rooster to a hen with one shot. Some people call me a freak. I hate that word. I don't believe in it. Better yet, I don't believe in labels. You know, I think you're the only girl in the world that can stand on a stage with a spotlight in her eye and still see a diamond inside a man's pocket. Because I'm up at five every morning working my ass off. Does someone want to just tell me to my face you're never going to give me the scores I deserve? Hello and welcome to Girls on Film. I'm Anna Smith and today I'm talking to the internationally acclaimed filmmaker Ondi Timona, whose documentary Last Flight Home is a beautifully moving and deeply personal account of her and her close-knit family's experience. It follows them as their extraordinary father chooses to end his own life following a long illness and the film explores his past as the co-founder of Air Florida. Ondi's work, from Dig to We Live in Public, has always focused on massive subjects, but none have been as personal as Last Flight Home. Hi, babe. Hi. Hi. Got any secrets for me? Hi, darling. Hi, babe. I thank you for all the years of your devotion. You never let me down. Welcome to Girls on Film. Huge congratulations on your film. It was so incredibly powerful. Um, I know, I'm sure everyone has said this, but I was moved to tears pretty much throughout the film. Thank you for sharing something so incredibly personal. Um, Could you talk to me a little bit about that decision and that moment when you decided to share this story in film? So when dad told us that he really wanted to die, he was very insistent upon it. And it was not something that any of us could have ever predicted from him. He was the most tenacious person. He said he'd see my son off to college. And, you know, he didn't even know where my son was going to get into college, even, you know, where he'd been accepted. Uh, But suddenly he needed to die. And that was because he was going to be sent to a facility. And that's why the film opens with that question. And I just started recording him, even just his voice from the hospital, just because I was desperate not to forget him, his the sound of his voice, his personality. Uh, he was the most extraordinary human being any of us had ever known. Um, and, um, and he had had a massive stroke from an accident. His neck was cracked uh, in a massage when I was just nine years old. He was 53. And he was, you know, he had run six miles that day. It, from a, a little girl's perspective, he was invincible. And so everything turned upside down that day. And my mind has blocked any memory of him from before that time. So I was uh, really, I think, thrown by his choice to die and also terrified of forgetting him. And so it was never intended to be a film from the start. Um, I asked his permission and he said, I instinctively know you're on the right track. I asked my mom who uh, 
thought it might it was comforting to know that there would be something of him left. But sharing the film was a decision that I came to far after he was gone. Um, when I was editing a memorial video that my sister asked me to put together, a five-minute video, it sort of spiraled into a 32-minute video um, in a week, in a week's time, um, because I realized in that he was alive inside the Avid, but also there was such a quality to the footage. You know, it was like, it was the most beautiful and sacred space any of us had really ever inhabited. Um, and as one approaches death, actually, if you turn and face it, if you have the opportunity and you're not uh, losing a loved one suddenly, or if they haven't, God forbid, had Alzheimer's or dementia, but if they're actually with you, um, there is a, a lot of beauty and love that rises to the surface in those weeks. And, um, and so we were kind of given a gift in a way by knowing when dad would die. We had no idea that there was even this right in California. We didn't know that there was such a thing as death with dignity in California until dad asked for this. And as soon as he was able to choose that date, he his spirits lifted. He had a sense of agency, I think, and power over his own ending and how it would go. And as he said to me, would you rather get a call in the middle of the night or would you rather know when I'm going to go? And um, it turned out that we were able to to really make the most of it. You know, I, I set up Zoom calls with all his friends and with family and with people who he had led when he was running Air Florida. And he was able to see the significance he had in people's lives and the impact he had. And I think, you know, isolated during COVID and especially towards the last years of his life, I think he started to feel like he hadn't really given anything to anyone and that he was a burden on everyone. And uh, the idea of him leaving this earth with that feeling of failure was unthinkable to me and to my my family. I mean, my, my siblings and I, I think, all kind of conspired on how are we going to convince dad that he actually gave us everything, you know? And, and that journey that he took is what inspired me to share the material. So first I did the memorial video, Rachel whose rabbi was charged with doing the memorial by dad. And she was sort of panicked as to what do I do with this 32 minute video now? It's like the night before the memorial and she's on, you know, on zoom on the 21st of March. Uh, so it's three weeks after he passed and she showed the video because she had to kind of, and, and then people's reactions really took us all by surprise. It was just really seemed to help them with facing their own death and facing the death of their loved ones. And to even think about the right to die was not something that anyone had really considered. And so it just opened up all these doors. Meanwhile, I was just grieving by editing. So I didn't want to stop. I mean, it was an incredible opportunity to spend time with dad um, without the shock, without needing to care for him per se, but just to be able to be with him and experience his humor and his, um, you know, I mean, his wit was so sharp and his wisdom. I discovered things in that footage that I didn't even remember in the room or that maybe I, I missed. Sometimes people would visit him and that's when I would hop behind the camera, but I was focused on several cameras and I certainly didn't have a DP or anything. So, you know, I wasn't catching all of it and I get to sit there with the observant eye of the camera and really I, I, it was, it was a joy to edit. So I kept going. And then suddenly there was a feature, um, when it came to his actual death, I couldn't face that footage. Um, and I asked others to make the first cuts on that. Once it was edited in some form, I was able to face it. 
And then I probably edited it 40 times because I wanted certain things in there that needed to be in there for the conversation that I knew would ensue. It was also the learning that we did as a family that inspired me to try to convince my family to let me share it. What do you want to ask? Advice, just life advice, just how, how to live in life. How to live in life? Mm. Start off with respect for the one people you don't know and love for the people you do know. Whatever that means. I know what that means. Did I disappoint you? I no, you didn't disappoint. It felt very special being allowed into your family unit mm. as a viewer, mm. watching this incredibly personal moment. I mean, compared to your previous films, there must have been very different challenges for this one. Uh, yes. I mean, of course. First of all, you know, my father is dying in the film. So seeing that part, you know, as an editor and as a filmmaker, one has to go over a film hundreds of times, you know, so there's never a time that I watch that, that I'm not, you know, the tears don't come to my eyes, that I don't get covered in chills, you know. And yeah, the fact that I could never take his suffering away was so painful throughout my life. But um, he was the type of person who never complained. And he was just so gracious and generous that it wasn't shoved in my face all the time that he was suffering. But certainly at the end of his life, you know, all I could do was try to set up those calls and try to be there with him and give him a little bit of chocolate or something, you know. I mean, obviously, reliving that in the film is difficult. Um, but the best part of the whole exercise has been sharing it and realizing that his suffering and his example is really healing to other people. And that's the motivating factor. And that's the magic and power of film. Honestly, in my whole career, you know, from Dig to We Live in Public to Brand a Second Coming, all of these crazy films that I've made that are thousands of hours in footage, you know, this film, in a way, it shows me the power of film more than anything I've ever made because I've noticed what it does to people. It, it like really, I mean, our whole, our whole family's stunned by the reaction. My sister was the least excited <laughs> and and thrilled about sharing this footage. I mean, she really was kind of, this is a private, intimate, you know, and I and I was terrified the day before it premiered at Sundance that I had, was sharing something that was far too raw and vulnerable of my family and what would it do to them and how would it go over and um, and was this the right thing to do? What I was thinking to myself, Andy, what have you done? But the reaction has been people calling their 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 fathers that they haven't talked to in 10 years People holding hands in the cinema who are complete strangers and crying together. Yeah. Oh One man ran out to call his mother he hadn't talked to in six months. One man stood up in the, in the cinema in New York the other day and said that he's not going to carry his shame from this day forward, that the movie has transformed his life. And another man said he, that your father is now all of our grandfather and um, all of our hero and that the film is a miracle. And so it's it's moments like that that you're just like, okay, this is the fact that my father can live in your heart now, that's truly the power and magic of film. It's an incredible part of his legacy now, isn't it? You know. Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't I think it if the 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 greatest would be if it could change the laws. 
I mean, right now it's it's a law in nine states in America that medical aid and dying, as we call it, they don't like to call it assisted suicide because it's really not that. It's it's death with dignity. It's the right to die, and I think it should be a basic human right. I had never thought about it before this, and I had no idea it was even a right in California, but it became something so crucial, and I thought um, hopefully this film can can help move that forward for lots of terminally terminally ill patients who deserve this. I hope it does, um, because I'm sure like a lot of people you speak to, I have a personal connection because I watched a loved one die a horrible death. Mm. And I wish he could have avoided that. You know, I would have liked to have seen us have a ceremony like your family had, you know, and saying goodbye. Yeah, and I think it's very important. And I hope that maybe it helps to push the needle here in the UK as well. I think the only resistance would probably be from religious leaders and it would be religion but even reform judaism has changed their stance on it this year so they reversed it and now they sanction medical aid and dying they're very supportive of it so i think because in judaism it's a sin to take your life or help another take your life because life is a blessing and life is a gift but if your life is misery then what kind of blessing is that is that really life, you know? And it really has made me question life and death in this because of how my father is sort of alive in you now and impacting people's lives now. Uh, And what kind of life was he living when he was falling on the floor and struggling to get up and cracking his head open? And, you know, it was just a misery the last few years of his life, really, really, really tough. But again, I don't think he would have chosen this if it was not that he was going to have to go to a facility I think it was that he lived to be around his beloved wife and children. And without that, there was no more life worth living. Well, I do think this is one of the most life-affirming films about death that I've seen, you know? It is um, so powerful. And as you say, it's a, it's a tribute to him and to your family and to see, to see the parting moments. I can't imagine what that was like for you to watch in the edit as well, seeing everyone saying goodbye. Yeah, it, 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 again, it's such a different experience to watch it and edit it than to be there. And um, I was just really grateful to actually my friend Turner Jumanville, who came and did film that part because I, I knew I couldn't film on that day. So I asked a friend who I knew was a sensitive cameraman to come and meet my family in advance and know my father and then come that day. And he had the courage to do that. But um seeing what my sister says and how my brother is and then seeing my own precious son there with my mother, you know, it was just, yeah, it's a very different experience than actually being there in person. Yet I think for the audience, it really, my attempt was to invite all of you in to the family, you know, and to be part of it. And what I, what I find miraculous is that the deeper you go with our family, the more you see your own family. And uh, you would think that if I, held back or if I cast a wider net or kept it more general you'd find more space for your own family but it's in the details that you find your own loved ones so I hear so that's also wonderful I was actually wondering if this because people have said this film is life-changing for them was it it sounds to me but I don't know was it life-changing for you to make this film yes yeah yeah 100% nothing no I've made films for 30 years and never has filmmaking been there for me like this you know It was like a safety blanket to be able to document dad in the first place and then to be able to share his legacy and to have you know him and uh, and then to see what it's doing to help other people 
um, has been truly transformative. It's going to be probably hard for me to go back to doing any other kind of film than something that's deeply personal. You know, I, don't, I just don't know. I mean, I've written a script about dad. I was never going to make a doc, I should say. I wasn't going to make a documentary because I don't have any archival footage except what you've seen in the film and maybe just a few minutes more. So people would say, oh, your father's story is extraordinary. You know, you should, you should realize you're going to make a doc. And I'd say, I can't because I don't have any archival footage. Um, so I wrote a script start like about six years ago and I've been working on it and working on it and working on it with him. In fact, I read it to him in those last few weeks um, just to kind of review his life. You know, it's all about the airline and the stroke and the the crash that Air Florida had in the in the eighties as well, and it's all of it is sort of explored in that script, um, and it takes takes you all the way to the end, actually to the end of his life. And yeah, I read it to him, and we went over it. I wanted to kind of capture his feedback one last time, which is another reason I set up cameras was to not have to take notes or anything, but just be there with him and and see his expressions as he heard the script back. And uh, so we got through the whole script in those last few weeks. So I hope to do that next. Talk to me about the score by Morgan Doctor. It's so subtle and effective. Yeah. So um, so Morgan is, is an extraordinarily talented composer. She's actually a professional drummer. Um, and thanks to COVID, she was thrown off her touring schedule and uh, started scoring with me. We were also seeing each other. So I think like a few weeks into the relationship, I was flying to New York and I said, hey, can I can I listen to your records like on the way to New York? This would be a good chance for me to, I'll be working on my dad's script and I'd love to listen to your records. And by the time I landed, I had selected time code from several tracks to beg her to put into my movie Coming Clean about the opioid epidemic. Um, she ended up taking over and scoring that film. So it wasn't our first time working together to do this, but what was really quite special about this one is that she was in the room. You know, several of those really most sensitive shots were taken with her iPhone. You know, that I was helping my dad inside the house, for example, and the shot through the window of him entering the house or the brushes on the windowsill, you know, would just be taken by Morgan. So she was part of the family at that point. I mean, I hadn't married her quite yet, but the way she held space for me and my family during this period of time was actually why I did ask her to marry me. But um, I think it, it makes for a score that is even that much more dimensional in that she was there for everything. So she could really capture how it felt. And the space was such a special space, as I've mentioned, um, that we really, what we set out to do was create a score that would wrap itself around the audience, you know, in the way that we felt we were in that room. It was like a womb, almost not a room. And so we wanted to make a womb-like soundtrack, and she really nailed it, I think. And then my dad, of course, as you saw, blessed our union without even realizing she was in the room. And then... Um, the thing he says to me, the line he says to me the night before he dies, and he says, look forward, don't look back. Uh, so my sister, who's a rabbi, had the idea to marry us when we were all together as a family in Telluride at the Telluride Film Festival. And we just sort of, you know, picked a spot on a mountaintop. And then someone actually loaned us their home and we just got married in the meadow behind their house like a month and a half ago. How wonderful to, to, to know that so much, you know, intimacy and love was involved in this film on every level, it seems. Yeah, yeah. it's a film that is all meant to be here, you know, and it was just, it came flying through me. I mean, faster than anything I've ever edited. It was almost like I was just delivering something. And in a way, I think it's really my father's gift to me and also then to our family and then to, to all of us now. And I, 
my mother, you know, watching the film day in, day out, like my, every night after he died. And then now having it for her, it's been so important. That was the first element that actually convinced my sister that the film has real healing power. You say it's the most one of the most life affirming films about death. It's just life affirming, I think, overall. Yeah. It's but, about yeah. as much about how to live, I think, as how to die. Yeah. He was obviously such a, a driven man, very impressive man. Um do you think his example had an influence on your choice of career? I think that he never stood in the way of my choice of career. And he was supportive of all of us and whatever we wanted to do. You know, my parents never even told me to do my homework. The only time they ever intervened was when I wanted to go to California with my guitar instead of going to college. And that's when they just set up a meeting with the high school dean and came in one day. That was the only time. And uh, they actually convinced all three of us to go to Yale. I don't know how they pulled that off, but that was his dream. He wanted to go to Yale but couldn't afford it as a child. And all three of his children went to Yale. And since I'm the middle child, I got to go with both of them. But graduating... um, you know, from an Ivy League university and then opting to be a documentary filmmaker was just unthinkable, really. <laughs> like, no one even knew what that was. My colleagues in, in school did a double take because they were all heading to, like, Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley or something. And, you know, they said, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to m- make documentaries. And they were just, you know, there was no career in it in the early 90s. Uh, my parents didn't care. They never said a word about it. They always just supportive. Even when my brother and I were arrested making dig. And our one phone call was from jail. They never scolded us and said, you know, what the heck are you doing out there, you know, following these crazy rock bands? They never said that. And so it's no surprise that when I asked to film dad at the end of his life, he was just said, sure, I think you're on the right track. You know, it's just how he was. He just said yes. Because he must have been worried, but not saying that you're worried. Yeah, I can't even say that I'm the kind of mother that that he, I mean, I'm constantly trying to get my son to take, classes that will be a backup career to his dream to be a musician you know (laughs) yeah (laughs) which is perfectly understandable but yeah Yeah. but it must take a lot of guts for parents to just go look do your thing they've been so proud of me my whole my whole career yeah they didn't really understand dig and then dig one sundance and they were like (laughs) okay and dad dad watched everything he watched even you know he, he loved maplethorpe and he loved coming clean and he actually said to me sometime in those two weeks he said i just I said, Dad, you've given us everything. We're all good. He said, no, I just don't want anyone disrespecting you ever. I just want everyone to know what a great artist you are. Again, I just think this part of part of this film is that, you know, he just he just would be so happy and hopefully he's seeing how people are embracing me in this film. So make it would make him so happy. When you think back to the early times in your career, do you think gender was ever an obstacle in terms of the way people treated you or bias or? I don't think what happened with Maplethorpe would have happened if I was a man. I worked on that film for 12 years. I was the original producer. I wrote 58 drafts of the script. When it got accepted to Sundance, the uh, powers that be, which were independent people who did not have anything to do with Hollywood, more akin to real estate and, you know, all of that, took it out of Sundance, wouldn't let it premiere and recut the film. And it was heartbreaking. There was nothing I could do. And I don't know that that would have happened if I was a man, to be honest. Wow. Pull that out. It's ready to go. That's the focus. Mm -hmm. Remember, it's always about the light. Whether you paint it or shoot it, you have to find it or make it. And that takes talent. 
Can I take a picture of your flowers? Yes, you can. Please. All right. Take the bloody picture. Okay. My parents, again, they just raised me to think of myself as Andy and not a woman or a man, you know? We were all empowered to be whoever we thought we should be in this world um, by them. So, yeah, in terms of the industry, I think that um, when you're a woman and you have really strong vision, you can be considered bossy or um, threatening. And a lot of people don't say it to your face. But I, I, I know that's the case. And I think with a man, it's just accepted. No one ever calls a man bossy, do they? Or she's trouble. Difficult. Yeah, she's difficult. That's the classic. Yeah. yeah. You have to, as an artist, stand for what your vision is. That's the whole point. You know, that's why people come to see our movies, because they want to see our point of view. They want to see what it is that we feel we need to bring to a subject matter. And um, so, you know, I urge everyone, every woman listening to this to just stick to your guns because uh, that's probably not the right expression these days. <laughs> or for this country. I think it's a good but, expression. You know, we know what you mean. Yeah. Stick with it. That's, yeah. that's good advice. And, and you get Inspiring. your sort of way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> stick to your camera. Stick to your vision. Perfect. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you so much thank for you the so interview much. today. It's been a real pleasure to speak uh, to you. Thanks it's so sweet to film. watch you with your tears in your eyes as I talk oh. <laughs> as well, you know, to, to know that this meant that much to you is Truly meaningful to me. This is the first time I've probably teared up in an interview, I think, so you can tell how powerful your film is. Oh, Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Ondi Timona's Last Flight Home will be in UK cinemas from Friday, the 25th of November, 2022. Girls on Film is an HLA production brought to you by executive producer Hedda Archbold, producer Lydia Scott, audio editor Nick Wassell, and intern Ellie Hardy. Also, thanks to our partners for this episode, MTV Documentary Films. I'm Anna Smith, and I was joined by Ondi Timona. Thanks for listening. Andy is just so worried that I don't spend enough time squeezing your hand. I love him. He knows I love him. She's the director. It's not about that. <laughs>